Hello and welcome to the Wolf Den Podcast, your home for competitive Digimon TCG discussion and news. This week, we will be discussing the Digimon competitive economy, as well as future format preparation. So, this week, to really emphasize what we're talking about, we're going to be dealing with the costs of the card game, and how it relates to other card games, as well as ways that we stay ahead of some of the more cost-prohibitive sides of the card game and how we kind of tackle just being able to afford this card game at a competitive level and not necessarily the way that i do because i just buy a case of every set and i'm good to go but i understand not everyone is in that type of a situation and uh they need to strategize and plan more accordingly which i've covered in a couple of videos um and I always find the uh, the economy of the card game to be a fascinating topic. Yeah, and I know even though that's how you prepare for each format, that's not necessarily... Um, you don't do it because you feel as though that's the most efficient way. It's just something you enjoy doing. Uh, yeah, like case buying, I always like seeing case ratios to figure out like, oh... How rare is this card actually? Is this not necessarily like, is this card priced correctly? Uh, because there's a whole bunch of different factors that go into that. But like, what are your actual chances of pulling this card particularly? And I notice a lot of people have those types of questions. Um, and between the different sets, uh, it could get a little lost and confusing on what their approach is for each of the different sets. And uh, before we get too quick, I've left it out of my notes but um we are available on all streaming platforms spotify apple Podcasts, google podcasts um so look for us there under digimon wolf den digimon tcg i believe is the full name but um and we are also available on twitch and youtube under uh zenitsu yes spelled with an x um yes <laughs> so yeah just getting back to the topic at hand at least um you know affording to play a card game something that a lot of people you know ask about at least as far as um how much it costs how much it could cost um how we go about trying to balance playing a card game at a competitive level and i feel like the most efficient thing you could do for affording to play a card game is to just do as much non non-purchasing preparatory work as possible. So before a format even comes out, before we can even play with it in our hands in North America in English, do the groundwork and figure out if it's A, something that will be good and competitive and something that will, you know, stay true for the format at least by your best expectations obviously ours are always different and then b something you'll enjoy playing so that you aren't tempted to buy into a different deck or switch off of it too soon uh, a good example of this is we're coming up onto bt10 and we already have a couple of gamamon based cards already out gamamon is a fun casual deck it isn't something that's going to be super hyper meta competitive but uh, it does get a couple of new support cards here and there in EX3 that you could think about utilizing. So it's not like it's a deck that isn't going to be like going away just because you still have other ways to upgrade it, enhance it, and still be able to play it. So that's the type of concept that uh, we're kind of trying to relate to. So as uh, another good example right now with a lot of these uh, BT9 decks... Um, they don't really get a whole lot of tools going into BT10. In fact, they almost get no tools at all. Uh, but they're still somewhat competitive, so um, that's kind of something you have to take a look at. Is is this what is the likelihood of this actually getting support? Um, when you're guessing for a deck, if you're planning on playing it more than uh, two, three formats, especially if you know it's not getting any support. Yeah, that's something that we do have the slight benefit of as far as as far as we're behind uh with the release schedule compared to japan and so we have the opportunity to look at not only what cards are performing in these advanced formats in japan at their 
local level for the to the extent in which they play the game, but also um, being able to look even further into the future as far as potential support and potential archetype structures for card design three or four sets in the future sometimes. Because right now in Japan, um, they are on BT11 spoilers. Uh, right now in English, as of the recording of this video, uh, slash podcast, um, we are only on BT9. So there is an extra set in between those. So we're about three sets behind currently. And we already know that certain archetypes are going to be getting support that um, previously didn't see any support in the previous sets. So that's the type of thing where it's just like, oh, this makes sense on why it got support. And then uh, the market does the market thing and fluctuates its price accordingly uh, based on the spike trends. So usually there's two waves of spike trending. There is the initial wave of the announcement, and then there is the initial wave of the release. So once a card is announced, people go mad crazy trying to buy their copies in preparation so they don't have to later when the card is released and then it spikes again because, um, you know, people actually have the cards and they want to start playing the deck in preparation for what they, you know, were planning to play. Uh, and then there's a cool off period in between. So it's just understanding those market trends can help a lot when making cards affordable. Yeah, that's basically what I've seen as far as the market's concerned. Each time a card gets spoiled, there is that initial rush of people trying to buy out cards that they might want to use, which that almost seems to be the the worst time to buy, kind of period, because not only have we still not seen the full suite of spoiled cards for that given archetype, so we don't even know if that card will be used or not, and B, we don't know if it'll perform super well in that archetype or in that format that hasn't also come out yet so you could have people buying up all these cards for a given archetype that by the time it actually comes out just might be dead in the water but like and it, it's not com like you know casual fun aside competitively minded purchasing competitively minded spending i want to take this to a tournament and i want to win that's not when you buy your cards. That is the, the the worst time to buy your cards, probably. I would agree with that. I, unfortunately, have the luxury where I just buy a case and never have to worry about anything and then sell off the rest to help pay for the case. But again, I understand not many people are in that type of position. And I generally, uh, well, my brothers, I help them a lot figure out what they want because their capacity to play the game is a lot more limited to mine. And even some of my uh, local buddies, um, their play capacity is even more limited because not everyone buys off of TCG player. Some people buy sealed. And then you have to evaluate like, okay, what do I actually need? How am I actually going to be going about getting it? Um, so on and so forth. I try to keep as low to the ground as I can. I don't, I definitely don't budget super well, but I also don't frivolously spend. I, I've never even hit close to a case of each set. Like that's, that's such just so ridiculously overkill. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it isn't needed after opening case after case, I could firmly I mean, say if you just want to play the game, it's not needed to buy a case. I, I'm pretty close to, in most sets, a, pull, a full playset of relevant cards, especially with the flexibility of trading off of certain competitive archetypes. So, as an example, I don't play blue, so that's a full suite of cards that I can just kind of trade off that are going to have some sort of value, have some sort of meta relevancy that I don't care about, that I can then trade for equivalent red, black, purple cards that I do care about that may not be equivalently costed, but you know, th those are at least valuable cards that I don't want or need and never will really want or need. Yeah, uh, my brother's in that same type of a boat. Um, he is a more hardcore purple player, um, more so in Beelzemon. And, like, that's a prime example of, like, okay, the deck might not be performing now, 
but it's popular of enough of a Digimon where it's going to see consistent support. Like we just saw with um, EX2 that Beelzemon got a huge wave of support and he's at least somewhat meta playable, even though he's not like tier one, he's still at least being represented in some way, shape or form. So as an investment, my brother decided to want to pick up that type of a deck. Now, uh, fast forward in BT10, we see that, oh, Beelzemon got a little bit of support because he was featured in the anime, and that's kind of how they decide how certain cards um, get premiered on top of uh, popularity. So he gets more support then on top of the fact that in um, BT, I think it would be RBT11 or 12, we're getting a whole new starter deck centered around Beelzemon. So now he's set with Beelzemon-based cards all the way up until, well, we get those new starter decks. Yeah. Um, so I guess another tip I would say as far as ways is kind of I get what I alluded to with myself in just picking a, a general archetype and sticking with it as far as play style or color and uh, allowing yourself to have those other gaps. So I don't have full play sets of blue cards. I don't own a single copy of like the promo where Guru Raman or the promo Guru Raman even um, any of the, the expensive cards in colors or decks that I don't play. I kind of just keep to my corner. I keep to my archetype and I still play tier one competitive decks. I still play meta relevant decks. I really don't stray too far outside of that top window, but I just kind of stay in my lane and I don't switch around too much. I've played yellow hybrids all of the last set and the very beginning of this set, switching over to uh, D-Reaper for the last couple of events. And I still have yellow hybrid I could play if I wanted to, you know, minus the Jet Sylphies. But as far as just playing a control deck, playing a yellow deck, that's still where I am, and that's still where my purchases lie. I know I uh, bit the bullet just knowing, seeing the future, that I'm going to need more copies if I really want to continue playing Control, so I bought additional copies of it, just exclusively Death X, because it is expensive enough to where I, I'm not just going to risk lotterying it off of sealed product. I would never recommend anyone do that. And I still kind of only think it's going to go up as we see uh, increased play viability of Tamer-based decks and the like. So that's at least as far as something I think people should figure out, figure out their play style. Figure out what you want to play and align yourself with a competitive deck. Don't try and align a competitive deck with yourself. Uh, I definitely can speak to that. I failed super miserably um i am if anyone who doesn't know me or watch me competitively play uh i am more of a hardcore blue player um i played imperial and bt8 and then i played magna or melga x um in bt9 so i do like these fast-paced multi-hitting hard-hitting blue style of decks they just speak to me on an existential level um when I went into BT9, I was trying to find out what I wanted out of the format, um, just because I wasn't super thrilled with uh, Melga. And uh, I played a whole bunch of different decks, and I absolutely did terrible with them. Um, so there is some uh, something to keeping inside of your lane, keeping what you're comfortable and familiar with, because especially when formats turn, that's when a lot of experimentation happens. And a lot of market fluctuation happens. So you need to um, try to prepare yourself for when that happens um, and try to reduce the impact as much as you possibly can. Um, thankfully, I had everything I already needed uh, for Melga. But if I didn't, I would have struggled to be able to put Melga together because it started performing better and better. And then the cards started getting more expensive because now everyone's looking at it and everyone's like, oh, I want to play that now. Um, and as a result, uh, right now, the deck's price is like, what, 170 on average? Um, so the competitive cost to play that deck specifically right now would be around 170. 
Yeah, so at least to like completely uh, iron out our landscape of purchasing and pricing, there's that spike when the card's announced, and then there's more of a lull. And that lull could be anything from, so again, cards are spiking from BT11 spoilers in Japan. So that's decidedly next year, I believe, for us. Yeah, it's that's, uh, a, that's BT11 2023. Yeah, it's uh, uh, February 2023. So, I think February 17th. So that's just so far in the future for us that there's going to be a decent um, lull in in pricing, and especially after. So I, I believe the, the best window of opportunity, the window that I take advantage of mostly as needed, um, is the window of after the card is... The spoiler hype has died down. It is no longer like the the last thing that was spoiled or something like that. And potentially now we're working more towards um, cards have just come out for like the two sets ago in English. So after BT10 comes out, you know, then maybe start buying your BT11 staples on the side or maybe alongside some cards that you need for bt10 and kind of maybe you know avoid some shipping costs that way with the tcg player you know if you like you have to spend at least five dollars from a given seller and you qualify for free shipping throw in some random other cheap older card that you might not have or additional copies of something and i just i think that's the most efficient window outside of just having access to sealed product and you know buying a little bit when the set comes out to give yourself some trade yeah with sealed products um digimon's kind of an interesting position um i would say if you are really interested in just cracking packs and trying to get like a play set of almost everything um from my experience uh if you just want a play set of most if not all of the srs um you're looking at if you're lucky about six boxes um, six boxes because there is seven SRs in a box and then there's usually 10 per set. Um, that's why you need that like extra two for like crossover. Eight is definitely a lot safer of a number, but now you're looking at more access. Um, especially if you're also hunting for secrets, because from my experience, um, you get five of each secret, um, usually one alt art and then a full playset uh, per case. So secrets are not as hard as people think to pull but they're not as common as people think either i think as far as the supers go i wouldn't buy boxes for supers like i th the no. the benefit of sealed product is that you do get such a wealth of commons and uncommons and rares that there are a few gaps in between though rares have been hard harder for me recently I think I was, I bought four boxes of BT9, and I only got exactly four copies of, like, a rare, which is just crazy. I had more, it was easier for me for, to get the supers, because the card pool was smaller. But also, the supers haven't been exceedingly expensive recently, especially not to justify an additional cost of purchasing a box. So if you're not looking for a particular secret rare, then you might as well just not bother. Like, so as an example, I didn't get, like, it's one of the worst examples, but I did not get a, I think I got two copies of Buy Human in four boxes, and it's like a $3 card. Maybe. You know, even the most expensive super rare is, I think, $15? And that's Yeah, Chim Chimeramon's a good example of that. Uh, yeah. But when it comes to a card's price, usually there's a couple of uh, factors that go into it. Pull rate is obviously one of them. Play rate is obviously another one. How many decks can this card go into? And then um, the third one is actual performance and results. So if Chimeramon saw um, more competitive play, his price would be going up. But because he's only used in a couple of uh, decks and those decks haven't been topping in a while... He's kind of just stable where he is just because of how playable that card is for a lot of different decks. So that's kind of like the triangle that I use to like gauge um, how 
a card would behave in terms of the secondary market. So that's why you get uh, staples like um, Greymon uh, and Tai. So starter deck Greymon from the very first starter deck and um, Tai Kamiya from BT1 because they're played in almost every red deck and there's almost no reason never to not play them because they're so generic and they fit on theme usually and on game plan with what a lot of red decks do. And that's what like creates staples that usually are going to be where the vast majority of the money inside of your deck is going to be. Like the plethora of your deck is just going to be blah commons and uncommons. And then sometimes your super rares even blah, uh, but it's those staples that's really going to be defining what the deck can do and how much of a price the deck will actually cost. Yeah. So just, just to put some numbers behind it, the, as of BT9, as of the t recording of this episode, uh, the most expensive card is Galmon at $3, but that may be due to the announcement spike that we just aforementioned, so I would use the better example of the second most expensive at $2. Those are That's the most second most expensive SR non-alt art in the set is $2. Just dirt cheap. Cool Boy is holding firm at $4 at a rare. And that goes into like the trifecta that I mentioned earlier because of how many decks can play that card. Um, definitely means that more people will want that, so there's actually going to be less in the market as a result. Yeah, especially as, uh, like I said, the rares are almost harder to hit, and people need full copies of Cool Boy. You, it's not replaceable in in a lot of the decks if you're not running. If you want to run four, you need to run four, basically. And that just goes into a lot of different decks. Like, even older decks, sometimes um, the card's prices, even though it's not seeing any competitive play, the rarity on how hard it is to get the card on top of what the card is doing for the deck dictates its price to be even higher. So, like, I like to pick on Diaboramon as a good example, his promo, even though the Diaboramon deck saw a total of zero competitive play in BT9, the promo, even though it kind of fluctuates a little bit, is around $11 currently, and it hasn't really done a whole lot, but it's still holding higher price just because of how hard it is to actually get that promo if you're trying to um, you know, play that deck competitively. Obviously, the easiest way is buying it, but that's what a lot of people also feel, and that's what creates the price, because there is a demand for it. Yeah, so that being said, though, the Diabormon promo was reprinted, and it's $8. So uh, And it's getting another reprint, too, so yeah. that's it's getting that's another fun. reprint. Um, and I don't think people are being super stingy about the version of Diabormon promo they're going to use. If anything, the stamped one's better, but um, I think I think Diabormon right now because uh, speculation. This is just my Digimon lore speaking. We're still missing his X Caramon, uh, and we're still missing the Diabormon X, and then whatever Diabormon X actually digivolves into. So people are like still holding out hope for more Diabormon support. We don't know when it's going to come, but people are like, "This is going to happen." We're just waiting. Yeah, because so. Again, BT11 spoilers are, you know, currently going on in Japan, and it does look like they're still rounding out um, some of the X X antibody Digimon that weren't included with the X antibody set. So they may get around to finishing some of these X antibody cards that hadn't seen support that still exist in the lore. I think they're smart pacing the um x antibody cards because like we got the big set with like some of the bigger names but like just keeping it around just makes those types of cards um like still uh relevant so like cool boy because they're still printing new x antibody type cards he's still gonna be somewhat relevant which is a good thing um and why like you would want to pick him up when the competitive environment is at a lull for him so that way you could get them for the cheapest possible price and then be ready for the X-Antibody deck you're anticipating may or may not actually happen. Yeah, if you 
if that's something that you could see yourself playing in the future, even though you have no idea how it'll play or when it'll play. It, it is kind of an inevitability as far as the popular Digimon that also have X-Antibody forms. They, they will... Like, they will probably flesh out the complete line of Royal Knight X antibodies. I know Craniumon X exists. That hasn't seen a card yet. Um, just some of the more popular face Digimon will get Lord all Knight of their X. Lord Knight X. Um, they'll all see some sort of support at some point. It's more of like a when than an if. Because uh, a lot of the design for Digimon does take inspiration from all of the different established lores that they have, whether it's the anime, the manga, the video games, what be it. Um, and I think that's like really cool. And we could use that information to gauge like what certain cards are kind of doing on top of what they've already done in the past. So I could take a guess that Diaboramon X um, is going to be more token heavy because that's what Diabormon's all about is the use of those tokens and then it's how they're going to be using those tokens is the more big question i think that's i mean you know decently off topic but the i i think tokens are underutilized in digimon at the moment there are just so many opportunities for things to potentially have created tokens like i know they're i probably... hate the fact that we have to buy tokens that's you, that's you super don't. crappy I mean, you don't have to, sure, but, like, if you want, like, the real token card, like, they made them, and I, I hate the fact that they made them, because I want them, and I know I don't want to spend $20 for a token. Yeah. Uh, I'll just print it online, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, there are, uh, you know, 150 Etsy sellers that would I'd rather buy from before I'd buy from the, you know, official card games, just, like, store. But... Um. Yeah, I I think to tokens are underutilized completely, especially as uh, prevalent they are in other card games. I think we'll eventually see more use of them. Um, but in terms of like the competitive environment uh, for Digimon, I think like it's actually really interesting compared to a lot of other card games in terms of their cost. Because I know Yu-Gi-Oh does tokens, and they have a whole plethora of tokens too. But um, Yu-Gi-Oh! is its own completely different beast. And like if you're comparing Digimon to a lot of other card games, it's actually one of the cheaper card games to get into, which is really nice because it has an easy, uh, an easy access point. Um, but it still does have some of its more expensive decks. Yeah. I know it's something that people ask for as far as uh, content and ideas and budget versions of things. And... Uh, I I do kind of laugh at that a little bit, only because um, while everything should be accessible and should be pretty cheap, as far as card games go, this is one of the cheapest ones, if not the cheapest card game I've ever played, especially competitively. Because, like, access-wise, just the ability to buy the cards, technically, it's roughly the same. You know, if you want to play, like, Kitchen Table magic or kitchen table pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh, like the cards are probably all equivalently costed unless you really want to get into the weeds as far as like how competitive you want your decks to be i know digimon isn't technically super restrictive as far as just the ability to play the card game i could hand somebody a pile of red digimon cards and they can make a deck that can at least function I cannot do that with a pile of Yu-Gi-Oh cards because, oh, hey, this one says it cares about this archetype and you only gave me three of those, so I can't play that deck. That's like the pros and cons to like archetype heavy styles of games and not archetype heavies, which Digimon like has a good mix. Like, yes, some of the stuff is more leaning into archetypes and when it doesn't, that's when like I said, those staples start to emerge and those are the ones that are going to be making your deck more expensive. So just going back to the uh, Garurumon example, if you wanted to buy my Garurumon deck, uh, I already said the price is around $170 um, and the vast majority of the money of those cards is going to be, well, in the promos. Um, the promos came out at the very beginning of the game, so they're not in print anymore and they crept up because, well... 
it's played they're played in basically any Garurumon based deck. I was using I was actually using these cards back in BT5 with uh ancient Garurumon because it's still a Garurumon, it's still doing that similar style of thing. It's just now that the game uh dynamic has shifted, um these cards are playable again, and that's what excited me to go back to Garurumon because oh, once I actually learned how to play the deck. I was really excited to actually go and start playing the deck because it was doing something I was already doing all the way back in BT5. When did the promos come out? Just because uh, they never came out blue. as uh, special booster 1.0 box toppers. Uh, that set had Gross. two box toppers. Yeah. Um, both and of them? The Wear Guru had a oh. alt art reprint um, as a participation prize if you entered in. I think yeah. it was the regionals the first yep. time around. Yeah, the yeah the 2021 online regionals had it as the participation card. Yeah, so like reprints do tend to happen in Digimon quite a lot to bring the cost of certain cards down. Oh, why did that hit? Oh, whatever. Um, but uh, some cards are harder to want to reprint than others. I'm I'm just gonna leave it at that. Um. Because like we did see a reprint of um, Greymon and Ty, it's mm -hmm. just they chose to put it in the worst possible place instead of where it originally was, and uh, that is because of that decision. Those types of cards aren't really going to be changing in price at all, even though it did get a reprint. Where well, so the starter deck eleven won't exist in English, right? Is that what you're uh, yeah? To? That's where those cards were reprinted on top of BT one War Greymon as well. Um, which is the best Greymon to pair up with uh, Greymon X Antibody, in my opinion. Um, and those were all in Starter Deck 11. So they're dirt cheap for Japan, but the cards have crept up um, to like $20 per each of those cards uh, because the accessibility is no longer there and the accessibility is not going to be there. These reprints, it's like, what, a 1 in 16 chance of getting the one you want? times that by four, like even in a case math setting, perfect situation, you're still not going to see a full playset of any of those box toppers, which is pretty unfortunate. And because of that, it's not going to change the price. So it's making red harder to play as a color if you're more Greymon focused. If you're not Greymon focused and you just want to play some good generic red stuff, like Jespon's still pretty decently cheap, uh, except for the fact that you still kind of need ties. So, just assume I'm stupid. I, I have no idea where they put the reprints that isn't Starter Deck 11. Uh, they put them as box toppers in BT10. Oh. Uh, so, you're going to be getting the Gamamon. Two box toppers? It's, it's a, uh, yeah, you're going to get two box toppers. Uh, the Tamer box topper, Egg box topper, whatever they chose for that set. And then um, you're going to get the Starter Deck 11 in quotation marks pack, which is going to contain the promo Gamamon. Um, the on-play deleted dude, which is pretty okay. Um, and then you're going to get one of 16 cards from uh, Starter Deck 11. Mm. So the reprint really isn't helping because Bandai decided to not make it matter. Uh, where they have made reprints uh, very af affordable and accessible was something like the Pulsemons, where it's just like, oh, um, this was a pre-release card. Not many people went to pre-releases. We need another way to get this card in people's hands. Oh, here we go. We could just literally give it to them as participation prizes for other events. And like that helped drive the price of Pulsemon down because that card was like, what, a $30, $40 card at one point, And now it's sitting comfortably at like 530 at its highest. I know it was ridiculous. I got my place at, um, at pre-releases and like just afterwards because i knew it was going to be a, a staple for a while but um yeah that was just crazy yeah so like we know in bt10 well hey there's going to be some more pulse bond support again sitting like gamamon it's not going to be a tier one deck but if you really like what that deck is doing like now is the time to pick up those types of cards while it's on the lull and under people's radars because the cards are going to be cheaper at this point in time versus when it comes out, if something comes up and the deck does well, um, and then people start buying everything up, that's not the best time to buy. So, um, I guess this... I, we, we haven't mentioned it yet, because I kind of forgot about it, but we 
there's technically a significantly riskier time period in which to to buy cards in its after actual release and then after the original like wave of events because while uh we can always predict and speculate and we're usually pretty accurate as far as what decks are going to perform and what decks people are going to play uh that doesn't necessarily mean somebody won't figure something else out and take a new spin on the format or a new deck construction that wasn't seen in Japan and therefore is affecting our meta differently. And so you could sometimes have a situation where a card is very expensive upon release and is very hyped and then uh, two or three events happen and that card just drops off the face of the earth because that deck that uses that card isn't performing or you could have the reverse of a card sh like either continuing or just like spiking in value even after the initial wave of purchasing has gone on after the set has released as a set or a card does really well i think magna x was a good example from bt9 it it actually got high i think its highest was two or three weeks after bt9 came out as armor rush showed to be one of the better decks to go into the OTK format with. And then as we got deeper and deeper into the format, it just hasn't been performing as well. It still gets in top 16 occasionally, um, more so as like a one of, or if it's lucky, a two of. Um, but it still is playable, just not as playable as uh, something like Melga or some of the other more prominent decks and as a result, its price kind of started slowly creeping down because, well, it's cooling off because not a lot of people are paying attention to it as much. Um, even though that card has some really good usability and is a good like anti-meta kind of an answer, um, it's just uh, visibility on the card isn't as high as something like Grandis was with the uh, the promos that he got, the Okuo promo and the... Um, uh, Grand Kawaga promo. I I mean, I think the biggest uh, example I have is just the Jamming Palmon promo. When Yeah, that's a, that's a good one, because when it came out, it was super it hot. It was so expensive, and I, I wanted to play, um, like, Grandis, or not Grand, Grandis at the time, just, like, Grand Kawaga, like, Green OTK, and I wasn't about to pay $30 for a Jamming Palmon that was just ridiculous i completely changed the deck i was going to play because of the, the price of that card and it at its lowest point was like a five dollar card like that's just a massive swing and then it spiked again when um grandis was you know about to come out and it went back to like a twenty dollar card and it's now a six dollar card and these swings aren't anything uncommon uh especially with the limited carpool that we currently have right now. So I'm sure as uh, the carpool expands and there's more tech options for us to think about utilizing, um, these swings will be not as harsh or severe, uh, but we're only like, what, 10 sets? We're about to be 10 main sets in with two extra sets. We're only staring at like maybe sub 15,000 cards. Like it's not a whole lot. And uh, something like Magic, um, they can reprint cards and uh, drop the price of cards all they want because the, the game has uh, a wide plethora of cards to be able to pick up different options to be able to play. Oh, uh, you don't want to play Liliana of the Veil? Cool. Uh, here's some other card that helps you discard instead. Um, and like... That's kind of the crux of uh, where we're currently at is we're still a fairly new game, but I think like the popularity of Digimon is actually kind of there. It's it's pretty high. Um, I think it's like what in my perspective would be like the fifth most popular TCG. Um, By the flesh last and blood metric, would be yeah. yeah, flesh and blood would be the only thing that's really beating it out, and I think like part of it is like. The competitive community is really strong. It's there. Um, people are playing the game, um, and the market is uh, doing fairly well in of itself um, with some decently expensive cards. And then you have your 
well, budget options. I think the accessibility has gone like a long way for Digimon now, especially after it. there was a real pain point in the community, I know, for a while when you basically couldn't get access to cards. It was so new, and it was during the big like card game bubble of late 2020, 2021, and... Uh, just in general, card cards were harder to find, and card games in general were kind of up in price and value, so people were buying and speculating on Digimon as a means of making a quick buck, not necessarily to play the game, or maybe they're just they're trying to collect the game, and they're, every, people were buying up pieces, kind of, period. I know my LGS had very limited quantities, now they have basically as much as anyone would ever want to buy on release day with maybe a second wave of boxes. I know, depending on the set, they still, I, I think right now they're out of BT9, so they've been giving out BT8 packs for the last couple of participation prizings for local events, just because they still have BT8 and they don't have BT9 anymore. Yeah, and I'm not going to do a whole lot of like speculation on like booster box prices, because again, like, the cards, the singles, for the most part, are not very expensive, especially compared to other card games. Like, I'm looking at some Magic cards because one of my little brothers, he plays Magic and his birthday's coming up. Um, So I was just like, wow, this rare is like five bucks. If I was to compare that to like a Digimon Super, I'd be like, wow, that's an expensive Super. Um, And that just goes to show like how easy and accessible Digimon is uh, when you're able to... um line things up the way you need it to to be able to play the game uh, i know some people they're tournament grinders they only really open up cards um outside of their initial deck uh when they win um and more power to that uh there's just a whole bunch of different approaches that you could do to be able to make the game more accessible um especially compared to other card games like oh my god um you want to talk about expensive, certain Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic decks are absolutely insanely expensive, and that's kind of why I don't play them, is because I only have so much capital, and right now most of it is tied up in Digimon. Yeah. I know it's uh, it's something I've been meaning to really break down for a while, because, as I said, pe- people are asking for budget Digimon decks, but Digimon's the budget card game, so everything's a budget deck. So... Even when talking to the competitive aspect, it's just so comparably cheap. And to put some real numbers on the table, uh, I just kind of look for some relevant competitive information as far as the other card games that are played and how much it costs to play those tier one decks, those tournament winning decks, and how that compares to Digimon, and even when considering Magic Standard, which it has rotations, so they don't have to deal with cards randomly getting really good and that are really old and being worth a lot of money, because if they're standard playable, at least they've been reprinted recently, um, I wouldn't ever try and compare Digimon to something like Modern Magic or... Oh, God, commander no. or something like that like like they're just they're just different formats that have different costs associated with them that's the benefit of being a card game that's been out for like 25 years and um but Yu-Gi-Oh is in some ways a better example of like at least the potential future of Digimon because it is an eternal format even though its ban list is really weird and it seems as though they kind of curated around uh what they want people to be playing and they kind of remove things that have been too good for too long, so people buy new things. But um, it at least does have old cards that pop up. I know um, for preparation for this episode, I like Skill Drain's a $30 card. It's crazy because I remember playing that in like 2008, 2009. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff because certain cards in Yu Gi Oh didn't get reprinted, some of them got over reprinted so on and so forth, but, like, what does the actual cost of, like, your competitive Yu-Gi-Oh! deck even cost now? I don't, I'm don't. i so far removed from it. All I know is I have three Ash Blossoms in my Salamangrate deck that I don't even play, and that's about it. So, I, don't, I haven't played competitive Yu-Gi-Oh! 
basically, I guess technically ever. I've never played competitive Yu-Gi-Oh. I played Yu-Gi-Oh in like 2012, I think, 2013, and um, but so just drawing drawing lines between competitive formats. Let's start with Digimon, and at least you know form our basis from there. You've got we've got just two. You're you're basically tied for your your best deck of their format, depending on who you ask, depending on the time of day. Uh, more people would probably agree with uh, Melga X at this point, but Alpha was the big bad for a while, so I've included that too. Uh, Melga X, based on um, one of the lists that was used, very similar, if not exactly the same as Zenitsu's list, um, is $171 for that list. Like, if you were to buy every single card from TCG Player at the time of recording, $171, a complete tournament-winning tier one deck 170 like that's pretty good honestly especially as far as a lot of card games are concerned and you'll really see how that number is pretty good as we move forward because it kind of only gets worse from here um i did include alphamon 2 and surprisingly uh either because the formats cooled down in general or because people are really switching off of alpha either way uh, alphamon right now um as of the the same tournament the um highest ranking alphamon list currently on tcg player would be 95 dollars and 50 cents not including shipping taxes and fees and whatnot but like just adding up the price of each individual card at its cheapest current listed value is 95 dollars and 50 cents less than a hundred dollars for a again tier one potential arguable best deck of the format is just absolutely insane and unheard of in other card games so at least like bigger card games i know there's yeah. a whole bunch of small card games that like can easily reach that but again they're small card games yeah we're, i mean yeah we're talking about digimon as compared to the big three as far as the card games that people would potentially be switching off of to play digimon or vice versa i know yeah there are a lot of other card games with smaller communities and potentially cheaper cards or potentially more expensive cards if for their um their cards are harder to access due to their smaller printing runs but um, white schwartz anyway and then um the the example i tried to include because something that i kind of found is a, a, a trend in general is the more control oriented the deck was the more expensive it was kind of agnostic of which card game you were playing which is really weird because magic a lot of its value in its control decks comes from its expensive and complicated land bases, and a lot of value can get eaten up in various expensive dual lands of different colors. And um, Yu-Gi-Oh has a bunch of older cards that'll eat up a lot of value, but and hand traps and hand and traps huge yeah. on hand traps. Yeah, because just generally playable splashable hand traps make those cards kind of shoot up in value so we included like the control deck as far as digimon you know playability is concerned again just for consistency's sake using the highest ranked list from the same tournament which we mentioned um and that was the august 20th core tcg regional online regional i believe and so that that set con list as the token control deck it was four hundred and eighty-one dollars and fifty cents. Um, uh, the just... <laughs> majority of the value in that deck is eaten up by two cards. Yep. Uh, it is going to be your four copies of Magna Angemon, and it is going to be your what? Three, four copies of four Death copies X of Death X. Yeah, four of each. Yeah. So that's where the vast majority of that money is going into, and those cards are used not only just in security control, but various other decks as well. Which is why their price tag is a little bit higher, because again, the more general playability a card has, the usual higher the price it'll have, just because more people want that. Yeah, and this isn't even necessarily the most expensive set con list I could have created. Like, like I, I didn't want to create a list for the purposes of this video. I wanted to just use like real data and at least just, just throw some numbers at the wall just to give a frame of reference as to where we're speaking to. So the, this is just a literal tournament topping list, 
uh, four copies of Magda Angemon. So, um, fun fact: four copies of Magda Angemon is more expensive than both Alphamon and Melga X. With if you sold right now four copies of Magda Angemon, super rare, base level, no alt arts, you could buy it's either Melga X or Alphamon, the whole deck. So, that's fun to know that maybe that card needs a reprint, but, um. It kind of does. Like it didn't get <laughs> a reprint cards, before. So. Yeah, it didn't get a reprint before, and its alt art is also kind of insane, considering it came from the same set, and that set was very hard to pull super rares from. Um, so that card is definitely due. So, um, I'm trying to use as as relevant a basis of information as I can here. So, uh, for my magic examples, I'm using, uh. Magic Standard, again, but aggregated from the last 90 days on MTG Goldfish. And that's only because, uh, technically, as the the most recent set isn't out in paper yet, but it is out in Arena, so they're including Arena data and then attaching a paper value to that deck. So a lot of those prices are pre-release prices, basically, because the, the cards aren't out in paper yet. So I've just kind of backed it up a little bit so that we at least are looking at cards that are out and were played and the set's widely available and whatnot. So um, number one standard is a control deck, Jeskai Control, uh, white, blue, red, for those that don't know magic words, and 20% of the meta, 19.2%. And so it's got a decent decent chunk of the meta right there. Not too, too much, but playable decidedly and that's 360 dollars in paper so it's decently cheaper than setcon but also you know almost twice as expensive as melga it just that's 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 a control deck that's your average price of a control deck you've other control decks of warsaw control 370 uh jeskai hinata 385 Naya Enchantments, 206. Teamer Control, 371. Rakdos Artifacts, 400. Like, these are these are just general magic numbers. Grixis Control. I feel like Grixis is always the most expensive for some reason. Actually, that's not true. Jund, I think, is always the most expensive. But um, you just end up with these three-color control decks that have fucking expensive lands. Uh, specifically in the case of Jeskai Control four copies of Goldspan Dragon is $100. So, not as expensive as Magnangemon, but more expensive than all of Alphamon, again. Um, and that's just the trend with card games in general. Most of the time, the value will be eaten up by only a small handful of cards, and then everything else is like pennies on the dollar. Yeah. Um. So, I'm not nearly as in tune with Yu-Gi-Oh! Um... But I at least somewhat cross-reference this data as just as a means of not just including wrong data. Um, and I'm gonna pronounce things wrong just because <laughs> I don't I don't actually know. So this is uh, this website uses data from recent tournaments, and these are just tournament topping lists of of various just kind of smushed together. It's not one tournament. It's not. Um, but all these are various event-topping decks. So, um, Danger Tournaments, Oceana Top 4. Uh, this is this deck's $650. Uh, Danger Tournaments, again, from the Rio YCS Top 32, $550. Evil Twin Sprites, Mexico City, WCQ Regional First Place, 736 Runic 544, uh, Chile YCQ regional first place, Danger Tournaments again, Oceana second place, 568. Yu Gi Oh! is fucking expensive. That, I don't know how else to say it. That's ridiculous. Like, there's, I don't know any measure, like, I guess technically everything is aggro and everything is control because there's only two turns, but, um, it's, that's just crazy. 
Yeah, it seems like the based on all of the numbers that you were kind of just throwing out, it seems like the average is like five hundred like, Yu-Gi-Oh deck. Yeah, it's like Between... expect to pay five hundred for a competitive Yu-Gi-Oh deck. So with Magic, depending on if you're playing Control or more like mid range or aggro, you would probably be safe to assume that you're going to be spending two hundred for a Magic. Oh uh, yeah, Digimon. The the vast majority of Digimon is probably around that one hundred to one twenty five mark. Um, Melga is only as expensive as he is because of he those legacy cards. If if he didn't have those legacy cards, immediately chop down eighty bucks from the deck immediately. Um, and then you're left with what another ninety dollar uh, deck. Like that's yeah. why the promos are expensive is because of they're they're needed, but <laughs> it doesn't make it that much more expensive than your average other card game and that's just one example there's plenty of other decks where they are slightly more than that like 120 mark uh but again look at alphabon there's plenty of examples that there's less um than like they're still competitive but they're less than that 120 mark um i mean d reapers as another perfect example like you could build the vast majority of that deck for pennies on the dollar like i think the whole core will only cost you like 20 bucks and then you're only paying for the um death X's. so that's where all of the money in d reapers goes but the deck is still somewhat playable even without d reaper or death x uh it's just death x obviously makes it a better control deck because of what that card is doing um, I'd, I'd say you're not no longer playing the competitive variant of the deck if you don't include death x death x won me most games that i if death x gets played you usually win I mean, yes, um, but like if you just wanted to play like semi casually oh, or yeah. slightly competitively, you could play like the like popper version of D Reapers by just removing Death X, and all of a sudden you've removed sixty, like a hundred eighty dollars worth of the deck. Yeah, and you still have something that's playable, especially like locals level playable or kitchen table playable, like. Digimon is not that bad, is, like, the whole point that I'm trying to get to. Um, like, usually the best rule of thumb is uh, the less old stuff that you need and the more new stuff that you need, the cheaper the deck will generally be, uh, especially if it all comes from, like, one to three sets. Um, like, that's just where the majority of the cards are, so you don't really need those legacy cards if you don't need to run them. Um, like Davis as an example, like there's plenty of good alternative options to Davis. Um, and some decks don't even need Davis or want Davis anymore. Look at Melga. I cut out Davis from mine just because of how the deck plays. I draw so much. I don't need the extra draw. I just have memory gain out the waz. So I don't need to be set to three. Like there's just other things that I could be doing where I don't need that card. Does that card help the deck? Sure. Um, is the card needed? No. Yeah, I actually I did leave out Magic Aggro just as like it's compo it's I just forgot about it. I, I don't play Aggro, but um, Aggro on average pretty cheap. Uh, Boros Aggro one forty five, Mono Green Aggro one thirty two, Boros being uh, white red, uh, Mono White Aggro. So something that Magic does have going for it is like with the singular colored Aggro decks, your lands are. Not exclusively, but mostly just the basic lands. So those are non-existent as far as the price is concerned. They're like five cents tops. Usually, just most people hand them out. Um, but yeah, in general, um, the card game is pretty cheap as far as card games are concerned. Um, and there are budget options, as you mentioned, for certain decks, especially when you're outside of like the top five decks basically as far as trying to top events um i think we're definitely moving in a good direction too as far as the cost of the game is concerned I, I there haven't been too many promos announced in the near future so once we finish up the security promos that japan has i think we'll be kind of done um actually yeah we still don't know where those promos are it's kind of bothering me um that we don't know uh by now but yeah, and even then, reprints are always on the way. Like Davis, as another good example, he's getting reprinted inside of starter decks uh, 12 and 13. So, like, instead of getting memory boosts this time, uh, like with the Gallantmon and all four starter decks, 
you're going to be getting a handful of tamers and Davis is in one of those. So that's going to immediately help reduce the price of the card while increasing the amount of people that can actually pick him up and play him for the decks that want to use him. Uh, currently, I still don't think that we have a better blue memory fixing tamer than Davis because of what Davis does. But again, um, there's still plenty of decent alternative options and it's just smart substitutions that could help reduce the cost of a deck if you're ever afraid that a deck is just too expensive. You just need to understand what the deck is trying to do and where to make those necessary cuts. Yeah. So, um, all in all, I think the yeah the economy's in a good spot. So, I don't really have anything else to say, and it looks like we're kind of at time. So, I will take this opportunity to wrap up this episode. Thank you all for sticking through the whole video or podcast. I know that we tend to ramble on sometimes, but um, we definitely appreciate your feedback. Uh, positive and negative, so feel free to let us know what you guys think. And the only wrapping point that I have is cards are also allowed to be expensive. Like, it's okay to have some expensive cards because that drives some sort of chase and that creates some sort of perception of value. And just because something doesn't get reprinted right away doesn't mean it's going to be the end of the world or something's inaccessible. You could always find something else, and like, the vast majority of the game is super affordable. So it wouldn't be hard to find something else. Yeah, that's a good point. So um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and close it out. Good night. And goodbye.